Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new uh, episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us again. Joining me are Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Really looking forward to the discussion. Elliot, let's get started with you. Please go ahead. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. So today, what I want to talk about is short selling, and both in terms of the role that short selling plays in the market and what short selling you know, means as an investor, like how you have to pursue it and how it's a very different skill than merely buying stocks. Um, so I think short selling is, you know, incredibly important for market integrity, market structure, um, and for playing the role of like the good cop in the market and weeding out bad behaviors. Uh, I think, you know, before this year, perhaps many would say that goes without saying, though it's become somewhat controversial given uh, you know, obviously the GameStop saga that we once visited on this podcast. Um, you know, given that, uh, I, I view short selling as, as something quite important. One might ask me, well, why don't you do more short selling than you do? And I think that boils down to the fact that short selling is a very different skill than is buying stocks. And I thought that would be helpful to speak to here um, because I think some people effectively, when they think about short selling, what they what they want to do in an ideal world is say like, hey, what makes a really good long? Let me find the exact opposite of that and go short. And it's not quite that simple. So first off, you know, when people use short selling in their portfolios, they could do it with more than one objective. Um, one example of that might be you might not actually be trying to make money on a short. So you know, I'm, I can't speak to the intents of Melvin and GameStop in particular, but it's very possible that you might say something along the lines of, you know, I think Budweiser uh, is really good. I think Molson Coors is really bad. And, you know, I'm going to buy Bud, short tap, and I'll try to realize the return, uh, the spread between the two as my return and directly offset one for one my exposure. And, you know, effectively what you're doing is even if the stock you're short goes up, if you're right about the better one being truly superior, you'll make some money along the way. So you're not so much attacking a stock to try to drive it to go down. You're trying to express um, your belief as a stock analyst that you can identify some degree of superiority. Let's put it that way. Um, but then there's also situations where you're pursuing what, what would be called like an outright alpha short, where you do expect the stock to go down. And so a couple of things to consider. One is the old adage that stocks go uh, up on an escalator, down on an elevator, right? So when stocks go down, they tend to go down viciously fast because, you know, you don't fear your way into a stock, but you do fear and panic your way out of one. Um, so when something bad tends to come out, stocks go down in straight line fashion, uh, far more so than on the way up. Now, one thing I've seen happen to people, uh, you know, I've obviously mentioned on here, I started on a trade desk. Um, I think there is a dopamine uh, response to how quickly money can happen on the short side when you're right. 
for my first couple years on the trade desk, I sat next to a gentleman who basically shorted Baidu for over a thousand points on the way up uh, every day because, you know, one day he walked in and was immediately right on the short side of things. And it got very, very challenging. Um, you know, I think that's a, uh, one of the dangers of short selling. I think that's part of why some people get attracted to it and never look away. Um, now, so part one of shorts being different is this reality that they happen much quicker um, when you are right. Though one reality of markets is they're built to go up. So stocks spend more of their time going up than they do going down. Um, one of the points I'm getting at here is part, part two of short selling is you do need to have I think when it's not one of these shorts that's like a bud slash tap pair uh, where you're actually trying to express a view that something's going to go down, you have to have some nexus to timing. You have to have some explanation for why you think the time is right, why you think what is bad about this company will be discovered and unearthed as bad in the near term. And then the last Thing related to that is when something bad happens, because stocks move so quickly to the downside, um, you want to be able to uh, nimbly get out of the position instead of, you know, on a long position, you tend to want to give it a lot more leash and a lot more patience. Um, so those are some of the differences in, in like behavior and how you need to approach it. And then there's the analysis itself. And, you know, I think this is where I still need to do some work. And it's part of why I haven't done much short selling to date. But, you know, when you analyze a company for the short side of things, I think what you want to look for, I mean, in some ways, I think it's more appealing to find companies who are like really boring and stable and find reasons why there might be some instability injected into their environment more so than saying like, oh, this stock's expensive. Therefore, you know, how could you rationally justify the value of this? You know, it's obviously worth much less. I'm going to short. Um, you know, that's a pretty dangerous mindset. So I think, you know, in terms of analyzing it, I do think you want to find reasons why how you're approaching it is different. A variant perception is extremely important. You want to tie that into a catalyst, why the market will realize uh, that's important. And then, you know, uh, be nimble in maneuvering your way around it. Um, so those are my things I'm thinking about on the short side. Um, you know, and I think the most important takeaway is I, I absolutely think there's some people who are especially skilled at it um, and not all of us are. So I think it's, it's appropriate to think of it very differently uh, than is the process of buying stocks. So I'm curious to hear how you guys think about short selling, if you do it at all yourselves. And if so, how? Yeah, thanks, Elliot. So I, I have a lot of comments on short selling. It's a fascinating thing. So I actually started uh, fresh out of school or actually before I'd even finished business school, my first job in investing uh, was in April of 2007, where as people probably remember, we were kind of just starting to stare into the abyss of the financial crisis. And by total luck, you know, I was at a long short fund that uh, did do a lot of short selling. and. I was kind of randomly assigned to cover the financial industry, among others. And so it was through a combination of you know, fresh, fresh eyes and, and blind luck and some work that I did kind of realized that all of these financial companies I was looking at had non-existent balance sheets and were facing an existential crisis. So for the first six or 12 months, they're all I really did. 
was short, kind of shorted everything I could get my hands on. We had a, we had a pretty big short position that uh, really saved the fund in 2008 because we made so much money on those short positions. Uh, it actually created some other issues, ironically, because we learned about counterparty risk very quickly and started having to short a basket of broker dealers to try to protect ourselves because on January 1st of 2008, our two prime brokers were Bear Stearns and Lehman. So we learned the hard way. Um, about the perils and pitfalls of that business. But what I would say about it is, one, it's, it is intellectually fascinating. I mean, like you said, Elliot, it's uh, the, the psychic income for me always outperformed the, the real P&L because I think it's really, really difficult to make money year in and year out on the short side. And, and to anyone who can do it consistently, uh, my hat is off. I mean, again, I think there are short sellers out there that can do it. You know, Jim Chano certainly pops to mind. He's got a very long track record. He's put up a heroic return relative to the market that he's been competing against, so to speak. Um, and even there hasn't really made a lot of money. He served a, a strong purpose for sure, both in terms of providing a hedge for his investors and his, in providing, you know, a, a so-called good cop in the markets. I know a lot of people would would disagree with that, but I think it's the only possible way to look at it logically. I mean, for every nefarious short seller out there who's looking to make a quick buck by saying something that that pushes the boundaries of truth. I think there are at least a hundred, if not a thousand short sellers who are in it for the right reasons and are looking to find companies that are overvalued for bad reasons and looking to play that role of good cop. And, and again, for every one short seller who's you know, a nefarious short seller, I think there are at least a thousand or 10,000 nefarious people pushing stocks on the long side um, that are they're absolutely to blame for the kind of behaviors that often get pinned on short sellers. So this whole narrative of, you know, short selling is bad, or I'm going to stick it to the man by squeezing these shorts. I mean, it's just patently ridiculous. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. And it's really ironic that it's that it's come out in these memes and all of these message board investors that have been, that have been driving a lot of this behavior recently. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. And it's, it's, it's telling too, that in conjunction with this, you've seen so many people get on social media, even get on CNBC or whatever and start spouting off about short sellers when they, it's clear that they have absolutely no idea how it works when they start talking about, you know, short interest being more than 100% of the float or, you know, basically accusing everyone being short as being naked short and all this. It's, it's total nonsense. And it's very obvious they have no idea how it actually works. And if they did, they'd probably be a lot more... Uh, hesitant to criticize it, if not outright appreciative. So, um, but yeah, look, I I haven't done any shorting whatsoever since 2014. Basically, since I launched uh, my own fund, I, I find it fascinating. Um, my hat is off, but it's just really, really hard to do. So, I don't, I don't think it's to your point, Elliot. It's not the inverse of, you know buying something. It's a totally different skill set. It's much more short-term oriented. Um, some of the skills can be transferable. I mean, the, the like I said, the detective uh, mindset, the, the investigative journalist mindset, the forensic accounting mindset that often goes into short selling is very valuable on the long side, but the execution and the strategy are totally different. So I don't know about you guys, but it's not something that I plan to make a big part of my life in the future. Yeah, I think I feel the same way uh, because... I echo the reasons that you guys just mentioned. I, I do think it's a different skill set, uh, even though sometimes it feels like a similar skill set. Um, I'm definitely a valuation-based investor on the long side. And um, 
you know, have been the dumbest kind of short, which is a valuation-driven short, you know, and and something like Tesla is a good example where the valuation uh, maybe didn't make sense, uh, you know, 80% uh, lower than where the stock is today. And so um, that's definitely a big issue when you try to short things that appear irrationally valued. And um, one thing that opened my eyes to this is uh, David Einhorn's recent letter in which he kind of talked about the shareholder base of a company like Tesla or another you know, high-flying stock where the valuation just makes absolutely no sense. At some point, that stock is owned by investors who just don't care about the valuation. They care about something entirely different. And as long as that story is intact, um, you know, you really don't know what the stock might do. And so the problem that I've had with, with short selling, and I'm a fairly concentrated investor on the long side, is that on the short side, you really cannot be concentrated at all. I mean, you got to keep the positions very small. And um, so they just don't really make as as big of an impact um, on the portfolio as do long positions where if you have a 10 or 20% position and you're right, you're just going to make so much more money than you ever could on the short side. But paradoxically, uh, the short side kind of is, you know, really in your head um, much more uh, for for that simple reason that your uh, risk is unlimited. So if you short something like a GameStop, um, it's just, you know, you're going to wake up uh, in the middle of the night wondering could there really be that infinity squeeze and what then? So it's a really, really tough um, business uh, to try to be in. And, um, you know, I've gotten burned in the past. I've told myself several times I'll never short again. And then you kind of get lulled into it. But the bottom line is um, the impact on the portfolio is just so small for me that uh, it's not worth the brain damage. And I'd rather concentrate on being right on the long side. Yeah, you raise a couple of good points. And and to further that, I think a lot of people can't quite, and it's really hard, but you have to have a completely different mindset. If you're a concentrated long-term investor, you by definition will get killed doing that in the short side, right? I mean, to your point, John, you have to have have an effective short portfolio of any kind, you're going to have to have dozens and dozens of short positions at a minimum, and they're all going to have to be sized relatively small. And you have to pay sometimes minute by minute, at least hour by hour attention to pretty much all of them. And you have to be trading quite actively. I mean, there's basically no way to not be trading when there are big price moves in either direction. If something's going up and going against you, your risk is increasing and exposing you more and more, and you have to be thinking long and hard about how much more risk you can take, totally unrelated to the economics of the situation or how much you might be right or wrong. It's, it's purely just a trading and risk management position. And on the downside, if something is working in your favor and declining sharply, you almost always have to take at least partial advantage of it because you can get completely whipsawed. And, and almost everything that's gone down, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100% over time goes down a big chunk, but then has a massive rally back 
up at least partially up, you know, it can double or triple along the way to zero. So there's really no way to take your hands off and ignore it. And, and so not only does all this trading and, and attention take you away from things you could be doing otherwise, but it generates a lot of frictional costs. I mean, the trading costs are are meaningful. There's a reason why long short funds are way better customers uh, to brokers than, than long only funds are. I mean, this is all done on margin. There's commissions involved. And then to your own investors, I mean, every every short position entails short short-term taxable gains. So, I mean, again, in 2008, we were basically flat as a fund, but generated a massive tax bill for all of our LPs because all of our longs that went down generated an unrealized loss because we were generally happy to hold them. And uh, all of our all of our shorts that were offsetting those, those losses were realized short-term gains. So that can be a pretty uh, unpleasant situation to find yourself in. So yeah, John, I'm, I'm with you. There's just so many little things that make it a, a miserable thing that, you know, again, it's, it's, it's something you have to really dedicate yourself to if you're going to do it at all. Yeah, those are all really interesting points. I mean, I guess one part of learning how to short sell that's helpful, even if you're going to just focus on buying stocks. And, and I think one of you hit this, <clears throat> is this idea that you'll actually be I think, Phil, you said it about being like a forensic analyst, uh, analyst, like understanding when you might be vulnerable, when you might be wrong. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty helpful. You could stay out of some damage. I think high level, one of the reasons why, or I guess two reasons why people tend to have problems with short sellers, uh, complain about them when things go wrong is one, everyone likes a scapegoat. So they don't like looking inward when things go wrong. They don't like saying, what did I do wrong? They like saying, hey, these unfair people got to me. And number two, I think part of it is like some of the most vocal short sellers, I think, approach some things with uh, less than the utmost of integrity where they are looking for vulnerabilities and positioning and trying to exploit those by creating like this really fearful, uh, panic driven report that bashes a company for no good reason. So I, I forgot what of you said, like you weren't ever on the receiving end of a short report. And I have now been, geez, three to five times, something like that, where one of my positions was attacked by, you know, some of these short sellers. And they'll typically like latch on to like one or two um, things and make them sound really scary, whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, so far, God, I've been wrong overall on one of them and, and the other have been pretty damn right for me. And it's been interesting to see just like, even, even the one instance where I was wrong, it was like the person didn't really want to actually short the company. They just wanted to exploit the positioning. And, you know, I don't view these as the true short sellers of the market. To me, the true short sellers of the market tend to more be like the Jim Chanos of the world. And I do think, you know, on the long, short hedge fund side of things, there are some really skilled uh, short sellers in the pack. And there's some that do it quite effectively, both to give themselves more leverage to lean into their best long position. So we've talked about the positioning before, like some of these really good long short funds will run like 300 to 400%, not like, geez, these, uh, um, the Arch Egos fund, which was like 600% long and only use the S&P as it's short. That's just pure leverage, baby. That's crazy. Um, some of these uh, more skilled ones running 300 to 400%, you know, tying it to position sizing, right? They'll have four times the number of names on the short side as they will the long side, even though they will be more long than they will be short, right? So it gives you a sense of how much uh, work you have to put into it, how little return there is per each bit of work. 
Um, though if you have a file on everything, if you're working on a lot of things, and if you're good at managing risk on a portfolio level, there's some interesting things you could do with it. Um, so that's always the allure of me, keeping a learned, keep, keep uh, trying to understand that world and where it's coming from. And, you know, just in general, appreciating the role it plays for markets. Like it could, it, it does help make risk in aggregate more constructive in markets. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important to understand where the source of the the short interest comes from. Because if you have a bunch of hedge funds that are shorting something as a proxy for something else. So I've seen individual companies shorted as a proxy for macro concerns about credit losses in the economy or oil going up or down. I mean, again, I've seen things like airlines shorted as a proxy for oil. Uh, So again, if it's a macro hedge that someone's deploying and you're long and you think the macro issue is basically noise or irrelevant to your investment case over a period of years, that's all fine and well. I don't know that that's something you really need to pay close attention to. But if you're long and some credible short seller comes in and says, by the way, there's some really shady stuff going on with the accounting here and you don't understand it, you need to be very concerned. Or if a short seller comes in and says, oh, by the way, we have pretty good proof that this this semi-truck is actually just rolling down a hill in neutral, uh, that's something I would be pretty concerned about. So I, I, again, I think to your point, Elliot, about you know positioning and the leverage entailed, I mean, I would say the majority of short positions out there are, are purely done as what I would call economic hedges rather than fundamental shorts. Uh, fundamental shorting is even harder uh, in a lot of ways than being fundamentally long or being economically short. So uh, I think you do need to pay more attention to those fundamental shorts when and where they come out. And again, I mean, a lot of times you'll see, I see people get really worked up about a company that has a you know big short interest. You know, I mean, 10 or 20% of the stock is, is sold short. And then you go out and you find out that it's really just all converts that are just, you know, playing the hedge. And it's like, guys, that's not something to be worried about. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. That's why the company issued the convert, right? So anyway, um, I think you need to really try to figure out, and it's hard, right? I mean, the disclosure is not there. Sometimes it's not consistent. So you do have to be careful in in picking your spots. But uh, if you you dig around and and kind of get used to looking for it, it's it's not all that hard to find. I definitely see... um the utility of shorting if you want to kind of lean into your longs even more, as uh, Elliot said, um, kind of that notion of a 130-30 portfolio where you're basically 100% net long, but you've got that additional exposure. Um, and, and that probably will juice returns in most years, but in some years, I feel like it could really be dangerous, um, especially if you know, as I think we're all inclined, we have, you know, one mind. And uh, if if one person is picking the longs and the shorts, uh, you could have some exposures um, that you may not be aware of. But if I look at how my own 130-30 portfolio would look, it would be like 130 130- uh, long value and 30 short growth. And that's really dangerous. Um, so, you know, again, and I think people like David Einhorn uh, probably had great returns for a while because of a portfolio like that. But then at some point, uh, you run into just an irrational market and it can really backfire. Um, for those that really uh, want a short, one one rule that I've kind of implemented and really have been able to 
keep myself uh, to is uh, to only short stocks above a certain market cap. Uh, for me, it's 50 billion because I feel like stocks that are above 50 billion, um, it's just less of a likelihood that it's going to 10 bagger on you. Whereas if you short something that's, you know, a billion or two or five, you know, that could just go through the roof before uh, it ever reverses. Uh, so that's just one little rule that uh, that I use. Yeah, that's a good one, John. I would say you, you still have to be careful. I mean, I think Tesla's probably ruined more short portfolios in the last few years than you could have ever imagined. And it started at a valuation of well over 50 before it went to 850 or whatever it is today. So yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's tough no matter which way you, you cut it, but you're, you raise a good point. I mean, you definitely want to avoid crowded shorts. You definitely want to avoid illiquid shorts. You definitely want to be extremely careful, not just in, in smaller market cap companies that may lock up on you, but even just silly technical stuff like low dollar price stocks. And so that gets even worse because a lot of the most zombie companies out there that would be good short candidates often come with single dollar, you know, couple dollar stock prices at most or down even below a dollar. That can get really hard. I was talking the other day with a, a friend of mine who was looking to short something and I, I brought up the case of a company where it proved to be absolutely correct that the company was in fact a fraud. And the company then had trading suspended in it because they could no longer rely on the financials that have been issued. I think it was a NASDAQ issue. So the, the trading was suspended and the company basically went into a state of limbo for like two years where it didn't trade and the auditor and administrator for the fund couldn't really value the stock that was sold short. And then the broker kept charging rebate on it, right? So I mean, again, another <laughs> complication from this whole thing is we used to be able in the good old days when interest rates were higher and, and the business worked a little differently, you used to get paid on the cash balance that was set aside on your short proceeds, right? And instead, for almost all of the good short candidates that you'd find out there today, you're actually paying for the privilege of shorting them, right? It's a negative rebate. So uh, it just makes life even more miserable for the short sellers out there. Yeah, that fraud story, though, makes me think of another angle of it, too. You know, you think about the people who fought Wirecard for, like, almost a decade about, oh, yeah. you know, how Bless they were obviously a fraud, right? Yeah, for sure. And then, but one thing that I look at, and when I think about that from my seat, it's like, you know, I'd almost rather be a, a um, an observer. And the day after Wirecard was disclosed as a fraud, if you shorted that morning, like the first day the stock was down, you would have made 50% over the next three days. And it's like, you didn't have to sit through all that pain uh, trying to, you know, be short and prove they're a fraud. You could just wait until the proof's there and the stock doesn't instantly go to, you know, where it should. Um, so I find that pretty interesting. I think I've seen that time and again where it's like this case that the market's slow to finally, you know, let's put it this way, Valiant, like the day after things got bad, you know, the thing halved over the next uh, couple months, uh, next couple months. So like, it doesn't always happen right away and you don't have to be the hero who like nails the top. Um, you you kind of never will be, you know, you're going to be fighting a fight for a long time. And I wonder why some of these short sellers don't just fight the fight from the sidelines. And then once, you know, everyone grasps like, oh my God, it's real, then pile in and 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 kind of hammer into that. I think they do. I mean, not to interrupt, but I think the, the problem is a lot of them do and it's a very smart strategy, right? I mean, it's basically exploiting the momentum and waiting for the facts to all line up and then you come in and pounce at the last possible minute. But again, unless you're Kinecos or 
or Greenlight or one of the big boys, it can be really hard to access borrow when you want it, right? Because that morning when the news breaks and everything starts lining up in your favor, the borrow just kind of disappears or gets really expensive. So it's a perfectly good strategy. I mean, if you were going to do it, that's often the way you'd want to do it, but it's just miserably hard. If you haven't laid those bets when the waters are relatively calm and the borrow is freely available and then you kind of wait in the weeds, it's sometimes there's no other way to do it, particularly in any size. Yeah, that's a good point. And then you get the rules where like, you know, after a 10% down move, uh, you know, you, you can't short unless it's on an uptick and no, the the quirks about um, what is and is okay is not okay to short. So that does get challenging. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing too is, I mean, I, not that we're giving any sort of investment advice, certainly I think we're all trying to avoid that, but I, I would discourage people from doing this via options until they get some really hard-won experience in that world for a couple of reasons. One is, I think people would be shocked if they haven't done it before as to how easy it is to be correct and express your bet via options and still lose money just because the implied volatility crashes on you. So something happens, it kind of confirms your thesis, the stock price moves down a little bit, but based on the structure of your options trade, you still manage to lose money. I mean, another way this often happens is when you buy credit default swaps, um, having to roll the CDS, you know, every time it comes up, you know, usually every few months uh, can be enormously expensive and and people sort of fail to, it's shocking how often seem, people seem to fail to account for that frictional or transactional cost when when they're calculating the, you know, the advisability of doing this. So, uh, again, it's just a, a laundry list of things that make this a tough road to hoe. Well, good discussion, guys. I'm sure we'll come back to the topic of shorting uh, again uh, many times in the future. It's obviously a huge topic. Uh, I think uh, it's nice that we uh, started down this path. Uh, certainly a lot to learn, but let's uh, move on to Phil uh, for your topic of the week. Thanks, John. So something that grabbed my attention, it's actually been a few weeks now, but there was an article, I think I saw in the Financial Times, at least that's where uh, I, I pulled the chart down when I went back to find it, was there was a, a survey that had been run by B of A uh, from fund managers. And so this was conducted in the first, uh, for between March 5th and March 11th, so a few weeks ago now, but it pulled 220 uh, professional investors with $630 billion in assets under management and basically asked them, you know, what's the biggest tail risk out there uh, in the market? And so they've been doing this for a number of years, at least the, the chart and the data they pulled back goes all the way back to 2012. And it's a really fascinating list. So in order, starting from 2012, there's a good, you know, handful of topics here and I'll, I'll kind of run through them real quick real quickly. It started out in 2012. For about a year, the number one tail risk that people cited was the European Union sovereign debt funding crisis coming out of the Greece and Italy fiasco back then. We, we transitioned pretty quickly to the U.S. fiscal cliff, if anybody remembers that. Kind of went back into the, the EU debt and funding crisis for, for a few months, went right back to a different one, which was the, the China hard landing, quote-unquote hard landing that everybody feared back then. Um, and for about a year then into 2014, 15, 16, it was kind of a mix of Eurozone funding, deflation, a China hard landing, and then pivoting very quickly in 2017 to just a, an alphabet soup of, of issues, right? Political populism, quantitative failure, uh, Brexit, uh, Fed 
you know, raising rates too quickly, quantitative easing going too far into quantitative tightening. We finally got to 2018. And for about two years, a trade war with China was the number one uh, cited tail risk until we got right into, uh, of course, the, the coronavirus pandemic. So at the beginning of 2020, for two months, it was actually the U.S. election was the number one cited tail risk. And then from March, end of February into March, it looks like of, of 2020, we, you know, the coronavirus was obviously the number one tail risk that was there. And then for the first time um, in about a year, uh, just recently here, higher than expected inflation is the number one tail risk that's out there. And inflation, that's the first uh, appearance inflation's made in, in about a decade that, that this data goes back. And I think that's really fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is that this survey also found that investor sentiment was described as unambiguously bullish. So 93% of fund managers expect higher inflation over the next 12 months. And that's an all-time high in the survey. And yet almost everybody in the survey expects, you know, a V-shaped recovery or a, a, at least some version of bullish. 91% of the inve investors expect a stronger economy. 55% say it's a late stage bull market, while 25% believe it's an early stage bull market, but only 15% of investors feel like it's a bubble or overvalued. So um, the reason I bring this up is, is twofold. One is that if you go back and look at this laundry list of number one concerns, number one, I don't think any of them are really a tail risk. I think they're actually all quite obvious. And by the time they become obvious, they're probably priced in. So it kind of defeats itself. And number two is, if you had gone back and read about any of these things, you know, the European Union is going to disintegrate. The U.S. is going to hit the fiscal cliff. Uh, you know, China is going to implode, whatever it was. These were all very valid concerns, obviously, or they wouldn't have captured so much attention. But they really suck all the oxygen out of the room to the things that really matter. Right. I mean, it, if you could find if you if you went back and compiled your, your list of best investments over this time period, you wouldn't have cared about any of these. Right? I mean, these were all valid concerns and not one of them made any material difference to your actual portfolio. I mean, the things that would have made a difference to your portfolio were definitely not on this list. So as I'm compiling my list of real tail risks right now, none of them are on this list, right? I would be worried about things like, you know, we have a record level of margin debt right now. And as you've just seen with, you know, the GameStop fiasco and the near failure of some major, you know, not near failure of some major broker dealers, but some very stress very real stress uh, in the system is highlighted by DTC. You know, that that was a, a big issue. And I think it's it's getting worse. Um, as we saw in Texas last month, the failure of the electrical grid um, is a very real problem, at least in the US and in certain other parts of the world, and and or a, or a large-scale terrorist attack taking it down. A major cybersecurity incident. I mean, just like everybody should have been worried about the pandemic before it actually hit last year. You know, people have been warning for years and years and years that a major cybersecurity issue, a cyber Pearl Harbor, is almost inevitable if you wait long enough. And yet that doesn't strike anyone as being the number one tail risk. I mean, what would be more damning than that? I think as you look geopolitically, I mean, you know, look, I don't know what's going to happen in the EU. I don't know what's going to happen in U.S. politics. I don't know what's going to happen with our fiscal situation. But if you want to worry about any of that kind of stuff, you know, the, the situation with China is a whole lot more concerning than any of those and yet that's nowhere to be found on the list. And I also find it somewhat ironic. I mean, again, I've never been a COVID, uh, I've never been hard on either side of the debate about how serious an issue COVID is. Obviously, it was a world-changing event, but you had some people that kind of skewed hard one way or the other. And I tried to stay 
more grounded in the middle and, and close as close to the facts as I could. But I do find it ironic that we're now just sort of declaring it over, even though it's not necessarily over. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, if COVID proves to be more variable than is currently expected, that seems like still a pretty meaningful tail risk, particularly as I look at some stocks that are quote unquote reopening plays that are back to higher, back to or even higher than where they were in 2019. Um, so if I was worried about a tail risk and I own something like a, a travel related company, um, you know, declaring COVID over would certainly be right at the top of the of the list of tail risks for me. So I'll open it up to you guys, John and Elliot, and see what you guys think about what the real tail risks are that we uh, should be thinking about or, or whether you think this is even a, a valid framework, because I, I think I do spend a lot of time thinking about this kind of stuff and thinking about what can go wrong, because I think it's it's useful for me to at least have created some sort of framework about what it would be like if one of these bad things reared its ugly head and, and actually materialized. Um, but then again, I, I don't think there's a lot that can be done in terms of actual planning and in terms of actual portfolio positioning to get ready for it, right? I mean, everyone likes to talk about uh, Universal and the, you know, the kind of tail risk, right, and left tail hedging and, and black swan events and that sort of thing. But it's much, much harder to pull that off than it looks from the outside. So is this something you guys just ignore or what do you guys think on the topic? So I think by very nature of being called a tail risk, they are like, not just extreme risks, but I think ones that are hard to just contemplate and see where they're coming from. Like no one could have said uh, COVID was a tail risk in the beginning of 2020 because who knew that it was lurking in that exact way and that the world would respond in the way we did. And so many sequences of events had to happen that it got to where it was in the first place. Um, so they're hard, right? I'll, I'll tell you one which I on your list, the one that didn't resonate to me with me as something that I could fear is margin debt. I think that's another way of saying, you know, stocks are really high, right? Margin debt is kind of correlated to stock prices and valuations. So the higher stock prices go, the more margin debt there is. It's almost a definition. And then, you know, it doesn't impact any of my companies directly, um, you know, unless you owned like Credit Suisse last week when, uh, you know, they had some of the wrong kind of margin debt out there uh, to their clients. Um, I, I, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, this year, I think, is the story of positioning, right? So maybe I'm wrong because positioning has mattered a lot and it's made certain things move to pretty extreme levels. Um, so, you know, in aggregate, that could, I guess, be a problem. But I think when I, when I think of like the tail risk that I fear most based on what I think I could know is something I should fear, like I invert what happened with COVID. A big part of what got us through this period okay relatively speaking, is that we have all this digital connectivity and a ton of our world could exist in the digital domain. And we could have some degree of persistence and normalcy, even if not all the way there. Um, but, you know, like connectivity itself and the infrastructure behind it and how it all can, you know, in interacts collectively is a complex system. And while there are redundancies and uh, you know, some built-in protection mechanisms. Could there be a single point of failure that we just don't know about where everything we use on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, you know, from our phones to our computers uh, just doesn't work or can't work for some period of time until we figure it out? To me, that's like a huge tail risk that we just, you know, 
it, it relates to the security angle. It relates to, it, you know, who knows where it could come from, but just the very fact that we are so damn reliant on this all uh, to me means that it is the ultimate tail risk. And it's the only one I could really like contemplate. You know, everyone fears the last risk. All of a sudden people are like, oh, what happens the next time there's a virus? And it's like, you know what, to be honest, I'm actually less scared of the next virus than I am of having just lived through the worst pandemic in 115 years. Um, maybe that's the wrong perspective because not every virus is the same, but I do think we've learned some lessons in how we, you know, uh, ho hopefully the right lessons in how we deal with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's to me, the, the, the fear of like a single point of failure in all our connective tissue, uh, digitally speaking, that, that scares the crap out of me. No, so I think that that raises two excellent points. One is that you're 100% right that people often see a tail risk, air quotes, as a, you know, a repeat or a slight variation on what just happened, right? We're definitely fighting the last war. So I totally agree with you. I mean, whether it's, you know, my guys wanting to start, the investors that I mentioned wanting to start a, a short-only fund in 2009 or, you know, being feared, fearful of the next pandemic right now or whatever it is, right? You're 100% you're right. I mean, that is very evident in, in history. So that, to me, kind of does defeat the purpose of a lot of this style of survey analysis. And, and I totally agree. When the pandemic hit and all of a sudden everybody switched to, you know, hours and hours every day of, of lots of broadband hogging, video conferencing and whatnot. And we, we knew, and we found out, by the way, after the fact, there were massive intrusions and hacks underway by foreign entities that meant that meant harm to the U.S. and other places. You know, I'm actually stunned that someone didn't take advantage of that to do even further harm to the economy of the United States. And so you're right. And, and you start thinking about the single point of failure. I mean, you want to talk about too big to fail in the financial system, which is a very valid risk. I mean, too big to fail in the tech world. You know, you could take down one or two companies, uh, and, and I don't know how hard it would be, but it seems like it would be within the reach of capabilities of certain actors. Um, and you could knock off a giant segment of the of the economy or just day to day life because of the interconnected nature uh, of cloud cloud based services and software, uh, it's just stunning. So I'm I'm 100 with you on that, Elliot. That if there's one thing other than armed conflict and nuclear war that would keep me up at night, it would be that single point of failure um, in our tech driven lives, along with maybe the the electrical grid. Because I think uh, as much as people might be able to use some band aids, I think it would be awfully hard to live without electricity for two weeks two months, something like that. I mean, that would be, that would be pretty miserable. But again, I think this all points back to the fact that um, you need to be as, as appropriately cautious and prudent as your capital demands, and you need to be prepared for this kind of stuff, but you can't really manage to it on a day-to-day -day basis, right? I mean, again, I guess you could go out and buy way out of the money, put options on a bunch of stuff, which is basically the tail risk hedging strategy, but you know, that does entail a lot of decay over time, it is not free, and I'm certainly not recommending it. Yeah, I guess um, I love the topic of tail risks because I think all of us kind of think about um, those ultimate, uh, you know, fears or what can go wrong in the world. Um, you know, if you look through Byron Ween's uh, 10 Surprises for the Coming Year, he has that publication, and uh, I'm a fan of Byron Ween's, but if you look at that, um, usually none of the t things that are on the list come to pass, and it's something totally out of left field uh, that actually happens. 
um, you know, to Elliot's point about uh, people being concerned about the last crisis. I mean, I remember after 9-11, everybody was wondering when the next major terrorist attack was going to come. And now everyone's wondering about the next major pandemic. Um, but it's definitely, um, you know, irresistible to try to predict uh, those tail risks. Um, I think, you know, inflation is definitely more in people's minds today than it's been in the past, just given Fed actions. Um, but here's a little a survey for you guys, just a, just a question. Uh, what do you think is the probability that gold prices could triple over the next year and a half? And you guys can can just tell me. How can I ask a Can I ask a clarifying question because sure. I'm ignorant to the to the history? But how often has that happened in the past? Don't know, but there have been periods where you know prices have gone pretty vertical. Um, you yeah, know, I would assume at some, but yeah. not in a while, right? I've I get the impression that people have kind of been. It's been a tough 10, 20 years overall, hasn't it? There've been some up yeah. and. Up and yeah, down, and, but a lot of sideways. Yeah, and gold has lost mind share uh, relative to Bitcoin when it comes sure. to inflation. Uh, yeah. But just, you know, let's say a triple in gold prices over the next year and a half. Um, what do you guys think is the probability? Just kind of off the cuff. As a, yeah, as a total ignorant, naive here, I, I just, I've never spent much time looking at gold. I don't have a, any investment in anything related to it. And I'm like I said, I'm kind of clueless as to the history or even the, the current state of supply and demand or anything like that. I'd say something though probably on the order of five to ten percent. Mm-hmm. Elliot? I'm gonna take under that one percent. Okay. Good. Well, you guys are are, <laughs> are pretty much where the market is. Um, you know, because the point I want to make is, you know, people say, oh, everyone's expecting inflation, it's priced in. Well, actually, um, if you look at GLD um, leaps, you you actually get a hundred to one leverage on your money if gold triples through January 2023. So that's more than a year and a half. It's about a year and three quarters. If gold triples, you make a hundred times your money um, on those leaps. So you know that's that's uh, one way to kind of you know I guess protect oneself against that tail risk. You could put one percent of your money into that. Um, one thing I'll say, John, that's interesting there uh, to add to your point is that I think it is it is empirically. True. It, it has been proven true that these, you know, far right and far left tail options, particularly when you get out beyond three to six months, let's say, you know, Black Shoals just doesn't start working very well beyond a year, especially. So, I think it's it's definitely true that those options can be mispriced and can be way too cheap. It's just you have to decide kind of what decay and theta you're willing to pay and how much of your portfolio you want to put in that, right? So again, it goes to the opposite of being a concentrated long-term investor. By definition, you're buying shorter-term, decaying, <laughs> non-productive assets that have a, you know, a time cost associated with them. But, you know, I think, look, there are a lot of people, I'm not one of them, who can take real advantage of this kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I, you know, I've I like those kinds of structures inherently. I don't know if gold is the one where I'd go out on a limb and, and 
take that chance. I've done it, you know, maybe once every other year I do something like that in a position where I think something's really interesting. And Phil, to your point about like the market structure, there is an inefficiency. The people on the other side of it are trying to accomplish something very different than the people who, than than you in in the mindset of the buyer. Uh, But Phil, I think you said something interesting there. I mean, I guess first one, one slightly tangential point, but it's about like inflation and gold. I think the second something becomes a known risk that everyone's facing, to me, I personally stop worrying about it almost entirely. Uh, because that means our entire edifice of everything capable of dealing with it is going to be thinking about it and contemplating how do we make sure this risk doesn't translate into something that's actually damaging to us. And then, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I said that to the extreme, like there are certain risks where I will actually be personally fearful, but you know, I think if everyone's worried about inflation, well, we got tools. We'll we'll tackle that if and when it's a problem. I'm not going to get worried. Um, but then, I, you know, Phil, you said the left and right tail, right? Like, you know, when we're talking about tail risk, isn't it interesting how we inherently default to like everything that could go horribly wrong? And when we're like brainstorming potential tail risks, like tail risk in that definition doesn't mean like things that could go wrong. It's things that won't end up in, you know, the normal distribution that'll be in the very far tails. And so there are things that could go very right too. So like what might be some things you guys think could go, you know, very right for uh, whether it be markets, humanity, whatever. Well, I think we're, we're living through one right now. I don't think you would have found too many credible experts that would have said, you know, average people like us would have had, had access to have, a highly effective vaccine inside of 12 months, right, from the onset of the pandemic. So I think that's a very positive right tail event that, um, you know, very, very few people would have said was more than a 5 to 10% probability a year ago. So that's a good one. And yeah, I mean, when it, term, when it comes to corporate securities or financial markets, you're right. I mean, we kind of associate tail events as being all bad and all black swans in the negative sense of it. But that's what I mean about being able to take advantage of option prices. I mean, John just cited these leaps on GLD, and that's actually kind of weird because it's taking advantage of inflation, which most people would think is bad and whatever. But th- the point stands that there are plenty of securities out there. I mean, I- I've known people, again, I've never done it myself because I don't think it falls in my abilities, but um, I know people that would just sort of prowl around. It's very low dollars, but they can put money to work in weekly options. And, uh, you know, there's lots of, there's a lot of option trading in Chicago. There's, there's people that have made a career out of that and they can exhibit just enough skill to really add up um, the value over time. And and they, they look around and say, okay, well, you know, the, the implied volatility is here. What if earnings are really good? Or what if a competitor gets acquired? What if the company gets acquired? Like this is just way too cheap. And they're they're just always out looking around for things that can go right and that can go wrong. And it's uh, you know it's an interesting framework for sure. Well, I know Elliot, you've alluded to the possibility that we're going to get the Roaring Twenties again a hundred years later uh, once this pandemic is over. And I definitely could see that. Uh, in some ways, because uh, there's a lot of pent-up demand, uh, just speaking for myself, to to travel and to get out there, to have fun again. Um, and, you know, monetary policy is very accommodative uh, to that. Plus, we have, um, you know, some real innovation in the tech sector, the internet, and, and, and how it's changing people's preferences to the point where 
um, you know, a lot of things that people care about are don't really have a marginal cost. I mean, anyone who's plugged into uh, the internet or, or gaming uh, a lot of their day, they're not really consuming the world's resources, you know. So to the extent that uh, people's preferences change in ways that um, are not actually taxing on the planet, but are just plugged in into a, into a virtual world, um, you know, things could change materially. And uh, there's obviously huge investment uh, implications there. So I'm definitely trying to think through that. Um, just one quick point on the kind of the hyperinflation and that GLD 100 to 1 uh, leaps. Um, where I find it helpful is if someone is concerned about that as a tail risk, uh, by just taking a small position in those leaps, you can kind of clear your mind and not feel like every investment in the portfolio has to work in a hyperinflationary environment. So you can kind of, um, you know, invest rationally and sanely again uh, when you feel like you are protected against the tail risk that you're concerned about. So that might be part of the reason to think about something like that. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point, John. I guess it ties back too to our the comment that you made about shorting as a as a way to have more long exposure, and uh, that's something that I've thought a lot about. It's something that I have actually done, and uh, I I guess I'd push back to the point that I'd say that it just depends on the individual and the person. So I'm perfectly willing to tolerate large amounts of risk, and I'm perfectly willing to be extraordinarily patient for years and years on end, even though it may look like I'm I'm wrong over that period of time. If I still think the facts and logic are on my side, I'm, I'm willing to sit that out. I'm willing to be extraordinarily concentrated. But I've actually found that when I used to have offsetting positions against things, uh, or in this case, like you mentioned, maybe buying uh, out-of-the-money options to protect on something, it actually doesn't help me sleep better at night. It doesn't help me think more clearly about things. It actually just kind of muddies the waters for me. So it actually kind of makes it worse. Like I'd actually rather reduce the things that I have to worry about and focus more on what's right in front of me and keep it as simple as humanly possible. And if the risks and whatever I'm worried about are, are too present for me to feel comfortable or, or in a way that I can't ride them out, then it means I should just go back to zero and kind of ride it out in a different way, which might mean going to zero, doing nothing, sitting in cash, whatever the case may be, right? I just, I've personally not found um, any analytical or psychological benefit to to adding any of those types of offsetting positions. It's, it's, it's been the opposite for me, frankly. But again, I think you're right. I hear that all the time from people that seem to be in your camp that, that do find some benefit from it. So I don't know what the breakout is between the two of us, but uh, it's an interesting interesting dichotomy. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there's always like one or two positions that consume disproportionate mind share to influence they could have on your portfolio. And typically it means you should, you know, get the hell out of there. But, you know, sometimes it means you should double down, um, you know, and it's up to us to figure out which which is which. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. I do think, you know, insofar as you fear a specific tail risk, looking for those kinds of structures where you could, uh, effectively price the tail out of your book is like exactly what you'd want to do if if there's a tail risk out there that's lurking. Um, though, you know, like I was saying, I, I, I think it's hard. I, I really do think, you know, once something is a, a known risk, you know, 
you, you can sleep a little better at night. <laughs> we got great minds turned to it. Like, holy cow, think of the positive tale of, of uh, the vaccine and what that's done. And to add my one, like that leverages both of yours, the vaccine and technology in general, um, you know, just like learning more about the genome and our understanding of it, where, you know, what I've been led to believe is up until now, like we'd find one new target and linearly increase our knowledge of the genome. But we've hit the point where we are exploring the interplay of different genes and their expression with one another. And that's exponentially increased the amount of relationships and influences and, you know, our knowledge now that we could study that. And I, I think slash hope, and I'm not sure what, where the line is drawn, um, that it leads to something truly incredible for humanity. Yeah, I agree. And, and to to recircle up on that that point, Elliot, I agree. I think the the summary of this little segment and why I brought it up is I agree with you that I, this is kind of my Dr. Strangelove, how I learned to stop worrying kind of thing is that you're right. Once you see a lot of people get worried about something, once you see a quote unquote list of tail risks, you're right. It's It probably means that it's getting enough attention that it's going to be addressed or that it's already priced in or both. And so that's my point is is twofold that you probably shouldn't be worrying about what's on the list of of tail risk type stuff that you're seeing out there. And even if you could come up with a better list, like I tried to do, it's not necessarily going to be all that helpful to you. So it's it's more of an intellectual exercise, I think, than anything else. So uh, learn to stop worrying, I guess, and and think more about what really matters is is the lesson. If that's if that's clear enough. Absolutely. Well, thank you, guys. This has been a terrific discussion. Really enjoyed it. And I hope everyone listening has as well. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.